In 2004, Tim and I had been married just three years when he gives me the woohoo for that in both services. Thanks, babe. <laughs> but we were married just three years when an earthquake, you may remember, under the Indian Ocean unleashed the amount of energy equivalent to 550 times that of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And on that day, 250,000 people were killed. Tim was uh, working with Food for the Hungry at the time, and he got a one-way plane ticket. Um, he, he left to help with the relief efforts um, indefinitely. We didn't know exactly when he would be returning. And I can remember, you know, newly married, our sadness in saying goodbye. But of course, our overwhelm with just the thought of like 250,000 lives, like every one of those lives being somebody's son, somebody's daughter, a person with wishes, hopes, and dreams. And in the days that followed that, you might remember uh, newspaper articles and conversations in magazines and on television with the question that we think about as we begin a new series this morning. Is it possible to believe in a God who's all-loving, so he wants what is good, and is all-powerful, so he's able to make what is good, in a world with so much suffering and hurt and evil. And we were asking that then, many people, and still many people asking that today. So we're starting a new series today on the book of Job in the Bible. Um, I will tell you that we entered, we've never in 10 years as a church looked at this book in a sermon series before, and sometime a while back I was actually um, talking with another pastor who said, oh yeah, we would never do the book of Job, so <laughs> more questions than answers found in this book, but um, we, we come to the ancient scriptures together to see what God might have for us. There, there's actually a famous American uh, playwright, Archibald McLeish, who wrote a, a play called J.B. based on the book of Job. And there's a line in that play that expresses the problem. The line says this, if God is good, he is not God. If God is God, he is not good. And that is how we feel when things fall apart. So this is the story of Job. It starts this way in the ancient scriptures. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job, not Job, Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons, three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. That's a lot of animals. And a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Here's what's going on. Satan is saying to God, God, you say Job loves you, but really this is just a quid pro quo situation. Job loves you because his life is good, because you bless him. But if there wasn't blessing, he wouldn't worship you. In fact, he'd curse you. So God allows the blessings to be removed from Job's life. And in the verses that follow, Job loses everything. All his animals, his house, his children. And on that day, when everything falls apart, this is Job's initial response. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, may the name of the Lord be praised. And the scriptures say in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the scene, us, and our limited perspective. So let's start with the scene. Job's story is our story. The problems in the book of Job are the problems of the human race. They're the problems we all face. We can see ourselves in the story of Job because in the beginning of the story, everything is as we think it should be. Job is a pious man. God's given him a wonderful life. He's the richest man in the East. He's the greatest man in his land. And the amount of blessing he experiences seems to be directly proportional to the amount of obedience that he has for God. Things are as we think they should be. And then one day, everything falls apart. And I just think sometimes if there was such a thing as like a painometer, you know, if you could measure the depth of pain in the world like you can measure the depth of the ocean, like how great human sorrow is, how deep the ocean of human tears, how large would that number be? And when things fall apart, Job says it like this. He says, if only my grief could be weighed and all my misery placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. That's just one man. He says, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. That's amazing words. Job is saying like, God, it's like you have poisoned me. And it's interesting that one of the books that is most troubled and most perplexed with human suffering is the Bible. 
And when you think about the whole of the Bible, it's like you have the first two chapters, the universe before suffering. You have the final chapter, the world after suffering, and everything in between is about suffering. Sometimes uh, we have to acknowledge, I mean, maybe most of the time, we bring suffering on ourselves, don't we? Like as a consequence of our actions. Um, how many people here, just show me your hands, have ever gotten a speeding ticket in your life ever? True confession, okay. Hands back up. How many of you were speeding when you did it, right? <laughs> so like you see, the, you see the flashing lights in the rear view mirror, and if you're like me, you're like, why are they pulling me over? Like everybody else was going just as fast. Well, of course, the reason they're pulling me over is because I was speeding. Right? So the Bible has something to say about that, sort of you bring the mess on yourself situation. So you have the book of Proverbs, and there's wisdom like drive wisely, you know, parent wisely, your words, your anger, use them wisely. But what's interesting is so much more of the conversation of the Bible has to do with the mystery of suffering. Of course, there are those places where, you know, we read about, like, we all make our own messes, and when we make our own mess, don't blame God, don't blame other people. You made your own mess. We all make our own messes. We need wisdom for situations like that. But most of the Bible, way more passages in the Bible, exist that wrestle with the mystery of suffering. So mostly the biblical writers don't explain suffering to people. Mostly, the biblical writers protest suffering to God. So they say, how long, God? What for, God? Have you forgotten me, God? Do you hear me? Will you act? Where are you? So fascinating. The Bible is not mostly written by people who explain evil or people who prove God's existence, it is written by people who are disoriented, who are overwhelmed, who are troubled by evil, like you and like me. Just last month, an extended family member of mine was so overcome with depression and he actually drove to a friend's house and took his own life. And his mother was then so overcome with regret and despair that some family members feared she would do the same. And these are those moments, I hate suffering. Like you, I hate evil. I hate that people I love hurt I hate that people I love carry burdens that crush them, that seem unfair, that are unrelenting. Like you, I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, troubled by that. And here's the thing, all of us, Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, atheists, atheists, none of the above, we are all united in this fellowship of grief and hurt and pain. 
And it's really a strange thing because when you ask people who don't believe in God, why don't you believe in God, the existence of pain and evil and suffering, probably the number one reason. And yet it's interesting, there's an author, Barbara Brown Taylor, she has taught many courses on world religions, and she says most religions are actually born out of suffering. So think about Buddhism, just by way of example. A young, very entitled prince named Siddhartha leaves his palace, sees a sick man, sees an old man, sees a dead body for the first time in his life and devotes himself to the problem of suffering. And Buddhism is born. Judaism centers around the story of the people of Israel leaving slavery in Egypt. Their children are being murdered. Christianity centers around the life and death of Jesus Christ, who was hounded and mocked and humiliated and suffered crucifixion. Isaiah says, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So Job's story, Job's story is our story because we all suffer. And in the book of Job, us is the place of unplanned suffering. Us is the setting for the life of this good man. So it's like trouble is coming to the land of us. And Job doesn't know it. He doesn't expect it. But it is coming, and it is coming like a tsunami. And so us will be this place where very bad things happen to a very good man. It will be the place where suffering comes without any explanation, without any warning, and it's going to create confusion, and it's going to create despair that's beyond words. And some of you have been there. Just this past week, a pastor friend of mine received news that her son was found dead in his dorm room. He would have been 20 this month. It's like every parent's worst nightmare. And their family is entering us. They've just entered. And the hard truth is, everybody will spend some time in us. Like either you are there right now, or you have left there and you're living in the aftermath, or you may not realize it, but you are headed there. And when things fall apart, the thing is, is we wonder this, like, what's the purpose of this pain? There is a guy named James Michener. I started listening to his audiobook recently. Um, he's one of the best-selling authors of the 20th century. Um, when he was a very, very old man, he had suffered a ton, and he wrote his memoirs. And he started out his memoirs by remembering an event from his childhood. So this is how he starts the book. He says this. He's remembering a story from his childhood. The farmer, he says, living at the end of our land, had an aging apple tree that had once been abundantly productive, but now had lost its energy and ability to bear any fruit at all. The farmer, on an early spring day, I still remember, hammered eight nails long and rusty into the trunk of the tree. Four were knocked in close to the ground on four different sides of the trunk, four higher up and well-spaced about the circumference. 
that autumn, a miracle happened. The tired old tree, having been goaded back to life, produced a bumper crop of juicy red apples bigger and better than we had seen before. When I asked how this happened, the farmer explained, hammering in the rusty nails gave it a shock to remind it that its job is to produce apples. Was it important that the nails were rusty? Maybe it made the mineral in the nail easier to digest. Was eight important? If you're going to send a message, be sure it's heard. Could you do the same next year? A substantial jolt lasts about 10 years. Pain is nails hammered into a tree. And the nails always come. And we want to believe that the nails, you know, the pain, the suffering, will somehow make us more fruitful or make us more productive. But what we know for sure is they always come. The nails always come. The book of Job says it like this, for hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble, as surely as sparks fly upward. See, often when we think about suffering, we, we want to make sense of suffering. Because we think, if I can make sense of it, I can control it. You know, if, if you hear, so-and-so got lung cancer, what's the next question in the circle? Did they smoke? Because, like, if I cannot smoke, I cannot get lung, lung cancer. If I can parent exactly correctly, the exact philosophically right way, my parents will, or my parents, my parents will turn out exactly how I want. My, <laughs> my children will turn out exactly how I want, right? If I can live this exactly healthy lifestyle, I'll never get sick. If I can do everything vocationally, work, do, 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 I'll never have vocational trouble. We want to make sense of suffering because we want to have control of our lives. We seek to make sense of it because we want control. And it's so ironic because um, you could make the case we suffer way less than people in the ancient world did. But we fear suffering way more than they did. Like in the ancient world, uh, there's actually author John, uh, author and pastor John Ortberg. He talks about this Stoic philosopher named Epictetus, and this guy said, Stoic philosopher, he said, you should constantly remind those nearest you of their vulnerability and their mortality. So he said one time. Like, what harm is there when you are kissing your child to whisper softly, tomorrow you may die? <laughs> I bet that guy's kids were in therapy. <laughs> it's ironic, right? We suffer less today, but we fear suffering more. I mean, in the ancient world, in medieval Europe, 20% of all children did not reach their first birthday. 50% of children died before the age of 10. The average life expectancy in the world at the time was 35 years old. But the thing is, is they had a worldview that could make sense of suffering far better than most people in our day. 
because we think we can control it or use technology to avoid it or legislate or outlaw evil. I mean, if you want to see how much our culture seeks to avoid pain and suffering, just walk into any Walgreens. Like we think we have a solution to avoid all pain. And what happens in Job is totally outside of his control. And the strange thing about suffering is that suffering points us beyond ourselves. Job experiences great suffering. And you know, his, his initial response is worship, and then the suffering continues. It inflicts his body. He has all these sores all over. He's isolated. And as the suffering intensifies, Job struggles in this book, and he doubts, and he cries out, and he talks to friends, and the book is like more than 40 chapters long. And by the end of the book, Job says these words to God. He says, God, my, my, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. God, before this pain I had heard of you, now my eyes have seen you. And it's interesting when it comes to pain, you know, we spend so much time trying to control it, to avoid it, to numb it. Before things really fall apart, we think we have some amount of control. Like I can numb my pain with work and shopping and comfort foods and a few drinks. And think about addiction in general. Every addiction begins as an escape from pain, everyone. And then every addiction ends with an enslavement to pain, every one of them. And we're also addicted because we're trying to avoid and numb and hide and control our pain. And that's where the ancients had a leg up on us because they knew pain is unavoidable. Our response to pain is our choice. And we can cling to control or we can surrender. You don't always have the power to control, but you do always have the power to surrender yourself to God. And actually, God can do so much more with your surrender than you can do with your control. The only kind of control the Bible actually encourages is self-control. So while pain is inevitable, how we respond to pain is our choice. You know, Lewis Smead's author um, said that we can distinguish be between two primary ways of suffering. And this is kind of... Uh, where suffering and hope begin to intersect. He says uh, there is suffering from, and then there is suffering with. Suffering from is when really anything you don't want in your life comes your way, right? So we suffer from in little and big ways all the time. You suffer from a bad night's sleep. You suffer from traffic. You suffer from 
a bad hair day. You suffer from bigger things, right? Loss of job, divorce, cancer, betrayal, bigger things. So that's suffering from. And then there is suffering with someone. And oddly enough, suffering with is something we choose. It's a voluntary suffering. You know, you stop what you're doing, and you pick up the phone to reach out to someone who's in pain. You get in your car, and you drive over to the hospital, and you visit that mom whose child just went to the ER. You listen to the parents who have just lost a child. You bring a meal to somebody who's lost a parent. You know, I sit with my daughter in her most anxiety-filled moment, and I can't fix it. And I can't change the story, and I can't make it go away. I can do nothing but hurt with And yet, my willingness to hurt with her, somehow in that, she feels less alone. Somehow some of her burden is transferred to me. You've experienced this. Somehow there is a bond and a connection that is formed that is deeper than words. Suffering with someone, that can hurt every bit as much as suffering from, but it often involves an amazing amount of goodness and nobility and kindness, other-orientedness, and it really brings us to the heart of the story about Jesus, because Jesus, Jesus is the master of suffering with, if ever there was someone who suffered with. It is him. He suffered with lepers. He wept over a city of lost people. He listened to people who were caught up in scandal. He had compassion on doubters. He suffered himself from rejection, from mockery, from humiliation. He suffered ultimately, of course, on the cross suffered from the shame and sin and guilt and death of the human race and suffered with us. And so, you know, we wonder, like, where is God in my pain? Where is God in suffering? God is right here. Closer than your next breath. He is there on a cross, suffering with. He knows all about the nails pounded into the tree, through the hand of God into the tree. See, Jesus didn't tell us we will not suffer. Jesus told us we will not suffer alone. And we see suffering within the physical body of Jesus. And we see suffering with in the body of Christ made manifest in the church today. The incarnational presence of Jesus 
in the world they're suffering from and they're suffering with. And here's the thing. If you're a follower of God in the way of Jesus, you are called to suffer with. And how do you suffer with somebody who died 2,000 years ago? Well, Jesus told us how. Like, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me, he said. It's like he's pointing to human suffering. I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. Where am I? I I weep. I bleed. I die. I'm there. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. So when you mourn with someone who mourns, when you listen to someone in pain, when you come alongside a child who is struggling and you tutor them, when you give, maybe even sacrificially, to extreme poverty, when you create a small circle, a small group, where people who are lonely can be known and loved. You are suffering with Jesus, and Jesus is there in the pain. You know, the last thing for today is just Job, this book, this story, his life, more questions than answers for sure, but but we see in this story our limited perspective. It's almost like as we look at this story together, it's almost, it is written like a play on two levels. Imagine you're in a theater. This is how this book is written. There's an upper stage. Just imagine that. You know, risers way up high in the theater. And the story of heaven is taking place there. And the story of heaven can see what's happening on the lower stage on earth. But the people on earth can only see around them. They are not aware of what is happening on that upper stage, the activity on the higher stage. They have a limited perspective, and that is where we live. I mean, the movement of Jesus really got started, you could think about it this way, in two key moments. The suffering of the crucifixion and the hope of the resurrection. Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Crucifixion, resurrection, suffering, and hope. Like those are the two key moments that encompass the heart of the gospel. So you look at the way that people lived after the death and the resurrection of Jesus and how they talked about this. Like the Apostle Paul, he's writing one time to this church in Corinth, and Paul knew a lot about suffering. I mean, he himself had been flogged and shipwrecked and abandoned and imprisoned and persecuted. Ultimately, he was martyred. But do you know what he says about suffering? He put it like this. Therefore, we do not lose heart. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's like amazing words. Like he knew a lot about suffering. And he's like, all of this pain, it's like nails pounded into a tree. What he's saying is you put all that on a scale. Every tear, every heartbreak, all the agony. And on the other side of the scale, because of the hope of the resurrection, you set on the other side of that scale radiant, unending, eternal goodness. And we can't fully see, but Jesus promises is coming. 
And Paul says that is eternal glory. He says it outweighs them all. There's an author and pastor, Tim Keller, and he, he points out this wonderful line in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings right at the end. When Samwise Gamgee sees Gandalf and he says, I thought you were dead. And then he says, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then he says this wonderful line. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yeah, it is. It is not just that suffering is going to end, though it will, but it will be reversed. Everything sad will become untrue. It will be undone. C.S. Lewis said one time, heaven will work backwards. You think about it, it's like it's already started. Because the symbol that was violence and injustice, the cross, has been turned into this symbol of sacrificial, triumphant love. It's already begun. And so one day, every agony, your agony, my agony, will be turned into glory, endless glory, unimaginable glory, an eternal weight of glory. So we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we may be wasting away. But inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. So the momentary troubles, they're achieving for us this glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do in the meantime? The scriptures say we fix our eyes not on what is seen. What is seen is temporary. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. Because what is unseen is eternal. What is unseen is on that higher stage. Let's pray together as we close. Oh, God, we need you. Oh, how we need you every day. How we need you. As the nails of pain from life are pounded into the tree of our lives, we, like the biblical writers, we cry out. And we remember, God, that you, too, have suffered in every way. And we thank you that you are close to the brokenhearted. You are near to those crushed in spirit. Help us to relinquish control, to surrender to you so that we might say in the end with Job, and my ears had heard of you, but now, now my eyes have seen you. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.